tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, Reaching the Secret Too Soon, a walk-on part in the war, and which one's pink? In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Sony introduces the Betamax videotape. Jaws is the blockbuster. Patty Hearst is holding up banks. (laughs) Jimmy Hoppa has disappeared. Rhinestone Cowboy. Love will keep us together. Laughter in the rain. David Bowie's fame. This is 1975. We've all been waiting for the follow-up for the huge album, Dark Side of the Moon. Tonight, we're talking about Pink Floyd. And wish you were here. I know that all the tapsters out there can probably guess who picked this album. <laughs> Tony! Yeah, Doug. I think you like Pink Floyd. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of my favorite bands and has been since I, I can remember. Uh, yeah, I, just, I love this band and I in particular love this album. It's not my favorite Pink Floyd album. That's Animals. Um, but I feel like this is the most representative of what they're known for it's the most if you will floydian album to me it's got uh you know it's got these this kind of long these long slow mood pieces it's got these creepy built-up musical loops going on uh it's got um this little bit of venom from waters but it's not quite as vitriolic as it is in say the album following this or even some albums further on and it's got quite possibly their most beautiful endearing and enduring song ever the title track of the album um so yeah it's and it's and finally it's the it's the album it's the last album where the band was actually a band well i'm gonna ask the obvious question sure and i'm gonna ask it like the person that would probably ask it okay Dude, why are you doing this instead of Dark Side of the Moon? Did you know you can play Dark Side of the Moon and watch Wizard of Oz and they sync up perfectly? I, I did know that. What Dude. Could you, what could you sync up to? What movie could you Don't sync ruin up to it. this Don't on? ruin it. Uh, well, if anyone wants to go back and listen to our Overrated Albums uh, podcast episode, they'll know why I didn't pick Dark Side of the Moon. 
Um, you know, there's some inner turmoil with me as to whether or not that album rubs me the wrong way just because I've heard it so much. And also just that, that um, I think all three of us probably have a little bit of this. And I think anybody who listens to music uh, the way we do probably has a little bit of this not wanting to pick the most popular album. You know, you, you push against that. Um, but again, I think this album is more cohesive than that album. I think it's, I think it's a better album. Um, it, uh, didn't sell as much. So it did okay though. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, how, how many, uh, how many sold? It was at 300, uh, weeks on the billboard top 200, which this uh, album, no, no, no. Dark side of the moon. Oh, Dark side of the moon was, uh, 15 years. Really. Yeah, it was like, it was something ridiculous. I don't even want to hazard a guess. You can go back and listen to the episode I mentioned in there, but I don't have it in my notes. But it was on until 87, I believe. Wow. And it dropped so, off, and then I think it went back on again. Uh, nothing uh, that we can, there's not much we can name that can compete with that. Yeah. Uh, and 19 million <laughs> is a fine showing. <laughs> yes, that's what this album sold. That's yeah. right. But, um, you know, and then also there's the whole, if you're a Pink Floyd fan, there's a whole mystique of Sid Barrett hanging over this album, which also, I mean, it's not the, it's not, it wasn't the first time that Waters dips into that well and uses him as a muse. I mean, loosely, Dark Side of the Moon is uh, about, it's about madness in general, uh-huh. but I yeah. think, I think there's also a lot of Sid thought going through that. And then this album, obviously, the, the, the uh, Shiny Crazy Diamond and just the general feeling of, of, of uh, emptiness and loss and and uh, uh, and then of course he goes really deep into the well on the wall, <laughs> where he essentially <laughs> combines his biography with Sid's biography to create the the uh, character of Pink, yeah, and uh, move that through that album. Yeah, and finally we get the uh, question answered about Pink. We have to wait till the wall comes out. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, let me let me ask about while we're on Sid because he's so important to this album and to this band. Is there another band that had a death in it where it looms over the band as much as it does with Pink Floyd? I think uh, Sid was only on one album and then a little bit on another. But so he's it. yeah he's he was the main songwriter, lead guitarist for the band before Gilmore joined. For the, and 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 he wrote their their two big hits, uh, see Emily play. Emily tries but misunderstands. She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow. There is no other day. Let's try. And Arnold Lane. Arnold Lane came before C. Emily Play. C. Emily Play was huge. In fact, it got him on top of the pops. And then he wrote um, most of the music on on Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is their first album. And he has one song, Jug Band Blues, on Saucer Full of Secrets, their second album. It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here. And I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. Um, but uh, you said death. He was wasn't dead at this point in '75. No. Um, 
You didn't die until the until the eighty until the two thousands, yeah, two thousand and five. Um, two thousand six. Yeah, at the age of sixty. So, um, anyway, yeah, he cast a very long shadow on this band. I mean, he, this band wouldn't be here without him. He's the one who named the band. They're named after two blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Uh, and, and and what his influence was is they were initially they were like any other band in the UK. They were an R and B cover band. But what he would do when they would play live is he'd go into these weird feedback loops and sounds during the bridges and take take the band in this sort of improvised jam sessions where they would be doing Louie Louie and all of a sudden in the middle of it it would turn <laughs> into this bizarre psychedelic romp and then it would swing yeah. back around and they'd close up with Louie Louie again. And uh, and they had light shows. They went with it, and they ended, they ended up becoming the darlings of the London Underground, almost a house band, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so what what happened was uh, when they after they recorded Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is a pretty is it, a pretty great album. I mean, it's got some you know longer psychedelic mood pieces, these loop things, but it's also got some pretty amazing just pop songs on it. And the two songs I mentioned before, Arnold Lane and, and CM Lee Play, are just fantastic pop, 60s pop gems. They're great. Yeah. This is uh, 1967. Yeah. I mean, they recorded that album the same time the Beatles were recording um, Sgt. Pepper. Now, there was a lot of uh, people chasing that psychedelic uh, look and sound at this time. Well, and the thing that made Floyd stand out was they were quintessentially British in a way that most other bands in that from that time period weren't. I mean, Sid has a very British accent when he sings. It's not hidden. Yeah. The stuff he sings about is very British. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it, they, it just sort of, uh, they sort of became this, this phenom, if you will. And what happened was uh, kind of a combination of things. He was doing a lot of acid. He ended up moving into a house um, that was well known in the underground for being probably the most notorious acid house in the underground scene in London. Yeah. And so not only was he taking acid, but people were spiking his food and his drinks as well. So he was taking stuff he didn't know. So that was messing with his brain. But this is what's amazing. Three weeks after they released Piper on the gate, Piper's on the gates of dawn, the record company makes them go back in the studio and start on their second album three weeks after it's released. Jeez. So there's this pressure to, we need product, we need product, which is also a theme running through the album we're talking about. That's right. And and he was an artiste and a a sensitive guy, and he didn't want to make pop music. He just wanted to make music for art. But the other three guys in the band were more along, hey, we got something going here. Yeah. So there's pressure from the band as well. Um, and, uh, And he just started to flake out. They toured the states. Uh, their most infamous moment in the states is they're on the Pat Boone show, <laughs> and uh, and Pat Boone's asking him questions, and he's just staring back at Sid. He's just staring back at him, not saying anything. Um, and then yeah. they come back. They cut the tour short. They come back to the states. Whenever they're playing, if he even shows up, he just stares at the audience, playing the same chord over and over again. Yeah. Um, they realize they've got an issue, a problem. <laughs> the final straw was they were, he just disappeared. 
just they didn't have any idea where he was and they had booked all this time in the in the at the studio and there were there was their main guy just nowhere to be found and i think this is when roger waters stepped up but then i think they were also playing dates and david gilmore who is was actually a childhood friend of Sid Barrett's, Barrett's, yeah, right. who um, they went to, I guess, high sc- the equivalent of high school together. R- Roger Waters, Sid Barrett, and Gilmore all grew up in Cambridge. Okay. Yeah, they all grew up together. Well, and, what, what they wanted to do was kind of a Brian Wilson thing and have Sid write the songs but not perform. But then they thought, well, we can't do that. We'll just get a f- another guitarist, a fifth member, to kind of augment Sid on stage. Um, because he was freezing up and... He just not wasn't, playing. He wasn't not playing. Doing yeah, it was catatonic. Yeah. yeah, that happens quite a bit on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, we cut those parts out, and y'all don't see Tony freeze in his uh, acid frenzy. Well, what happened, Jam? Was uh, the uh, they were swinging by to pick him up for a gig, sit up for a gig, and they just decided, do we really want to do this? And they ended up not going by and picking him up. Oh, and wow. at that point. He wasn't in the band anymore. Wow. There's stories, all sorts of stories surrounding his relationship with the band after that. Uh, there was I heard stories that he didn't want any sort of royalties whatsoever from any sort of Pink Floyd albums. He didn't want have anything to do with Pink Floyd whatsoever. But then, you know, members of Pink Floyd would actually play on his his attempted solo albums. I think he did actually make one. He made two solo solo albums, the Madcap Laughs and Barrett. And the first one was produced by Gilmore and Waters. The second one was produced by Gilmore and Wright because Waters said, I can't bear being in the studio with that anymore. Um, Yeah, he was, he had songs, but they were disjointed. And the thought was if he could get, if, if the guys from Floyd who really were, I mean, they did have an attachment to him. They cared about him. Um, if they could get in the studio and help him kind of move those along and form more songs, they they, they would be better. The first album, The Madcap Laughs, is really uh, kind of a hard listen because there's stops and starts in it. You can hear a guy sort of cracking up on tape, and they left all of that stuff in. It's really, uh-huh. it's uh, there's some genius stuff on it. There's some disturbing stuff on it. Um, yeah, and then Barrett's a little less that way. Uh, I th- I want to say I don't remember which album it is. The band's the Soft Machine came in and played, and were and they're yeah. uncredited and played as his backup band. It was probably the second one. Um, so he just sort of uh, disappeared in the early '70s from the limelight, and nobody really knew what was going on. Well, then he reappears at one of the in the studio. Yeah, and nobody knows who he is. That's during that's yeah, during, during the recording, the recording of this of album. album. He's yeah. so altered. Yeah. And I saw, I saw the picture of he went from probably one of your uh, I mean, he better was, looking yeah, rock star was, guys that the chicks dig. Yeah, there and was, uh, there were stories about how he was just he was they, like me in this organization. <laughs> <laughs> David Gilmore said it. He was just a like a wave of a guy, incredibly funny and incredibly good looking, incredibly had all the girlfriends. Had, yeah, he just uh, girls were just fallen he was never seen in the, as storm thorgensen said their their designer for their album covers said that he uh was never not in the company of a beautiful beautiful young lady and it kind of made the rest of the band angry but he was um, just like Ugh. tony did he play bass 
He, yeah, he was a guitarist. He oh, played, he played guitar. He played, uh, he that explains a, he the way. He played a mirrored Telecaster, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, he uh, he was definitely something. And here's the thing: I mean, there's there's the, the music, the music industry, the rock industry in particular at this point is littered with guys like this. I mean, we talked about Brian Wilson, Rocky Erickson's another guy. I think. The reality is that it wasn't just the drugs. There was probably something already with these guys yeah. that just sort of helped them crack a little bit more than they would have had they not. Well, a lot indulged. of times people say this is a self-medicating, an effort to self-medicate. But yeah, when when diagnosed condition. When he showed up during the recording of this album, "Wish You Were Here," uh, they were working on uh, on mixing the the song about him, "Shining a Crazy Diamond," and he was bald. He had shaved his eyebrows off, and he weighed probably two fifty. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, he was in like suspenders or something. No, he was wearing a. He was like wearing an all white, all white. He had a gabardine raincoat on, and underneath it was like a white jumpsuit or something like that. And they had just Gilmore and uh, Wright had just played with him like ten months before on his album, and they so even Gilmore didn't recognize. Well, what was, it sounds like the COVID shutdown. What was funny? Everybody saw each other again. They all had. What 30 was, extra pounds. What was funny is I think Mason, one of them asked what happened and he goes, uh, there's a lot uh, this is a, this is in a book I have. He goes, uh, there's a lot there's a lot of pork chops in my freezer. <laughs> <laughs> so, um but he was he would he showed up kind of willing to uh he wanted to lay some guitar parts down and they had to tell him, "Oh, all the guitar parts are done." Yeah. What was funny is when they were recording this Gilmore was getting married to his his American wife and they had the reception actually in the commissary there and so he was at the reception right. freaking half of the people out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're I think we're jumping jumping ahead just a little bit. I think it's worth talking about what happened when after Sid left, just briefly, and how this band was really at sea without a direction. Yeah. Um, they did before this album, before Dark Side of the Moon, they did two soundtracks that were you know they were okay. They did an album, uh, Sauce Full of Secrets, that was just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. There's a song on it called Corporal Clegg, where Waters is obviously trying to emulate Barrett as much as he possibly can. They did a, an album called Uma Guma, which was a double album where the first disc is a live recording of their set list at the time. And you want to talk about Indulgent, Doug. The yeah. second outside of it is solo stuff done. Each of the member gets half an out, half an album or half a side to do something. And, and they, uh, they take full advantage. Oh, man. Uh, it's, it's, uh, if you want to, if JM wants to sample a little bit of several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pict, which is Roger Waters' contribution <laughs> to that album, it'll give people that, who aren't familiar with it a bit of a taste. It's it's amazing to me that they were able to do that. Uh, I, it's like they had pictures of 
the the uh, well uh, record company executives with um, <laughs> in compromising situations. So they were but, signed. They were signed to Harvest, which is I think a subsidiary of EMI, and that, it's a hippie label. I think they gave them a lot of a lot of rope to kind of hang themselves, if you will. Uh, but uh, the one thing I want to mention about that album, it has prior to this album, and maybe still beats it, the grooviest, coolest Pink Floyd album ever uh, cover. It's uh, it's got this what's called the Drost effect, which is the band in in oh, various yeah. positions with a picture behind them of the band in the same positions, but it's the members of the band have moved going yeah. all the way into infinity. I don't know how they did it. It's a very 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 cool album for Umaguma. This album covers pretty close to being as cool. But anyway, back to what I was saying. They they then did Adam Hart Mother, where the first side of that is a is a full uh, orchestrated suite that's code composed with this avant garde composer named Ron Geeson, who Waters had worked with um, for a, a the soundtrack for a television program about the anatomy called Music from the Body. Uh, it had uh, had songs on it like uh, More Than Seven Dwarfs in Penis Land. I mean, it's just weird <laughs> stuff. Um, but uh, the w- reason Adam Hart Mother is kind of important to this particular story tonight is there's a song on the second side called Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast. Breakfast in Los Angeles. Monkopodotic stuff which featured their roadie, Alan Stiles, frying eggs and bacon <laughs> in, in the background. <laughs> and the reason that's that's a big deal is because they had also started doing this show live where they would bring on saws, they would saw wood on stage, they would start, like, they would do all this stuff as part of their show to bring these, the, to do these unconventional sounds, you know. And that led them to go in the studio and try to make an album called Household Objects, where it was uh, using wine glasses filled with varying amounts of liquid to get a a tone, uh, stretching elastic bands over over pieces of wood to make it sound like a bass, ripping up uh, phone books to get a rhythm track. And they laid down a couple of tracks. They just really got the rhythm tracks down. They couldn't really make music. In fact, Gilmore says at one point, you know, we realized... You could stretch a rubber band across a couple pieces of wood, but it's not going to sound as good as a bass. <laughs> well, we might as well just play the bass. So they put that aside, but they had laid down a track of, of water glasses uh, or wine glasses with people ringing their, rubbing their fingers across it, and then also the the, um, the tearing up of the um, phone books, phone books, and the and the rubber band rhythm track. Yeah, but um, the reason why I bring that up is because the first track on this album, Shiny Crazy Diamond, actually uses that the wine glass track from the Household Objects things yeah. as the baseline sort of atmosphere in which Rick Wright lays his keyboards down on. So, um, yeah. And there's actually concert footage it's later where there are people playing wine glasses. And just for, for those who don't know, you can... Uh, you can fill glasses, usually crystal glasses, full of different amounts of liquid, get the tops of your fingers wet, and then slightly touch the top of the fingers in a circular and go circular in a circular motion around the top of the glass, and you will actually make a kind of a haunting sound. In fact, it goes back to the uh, 18th century. Mozart even wrote uh, a 
piece. It's called a, uh, it goes by the name Glass Harmonica. Yeah, didn't Ben Franklin he did. invent the harmonica? Uh, 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 yeah. It's, you, uh, I mean, I, I know the British like to play with their stuff, but in the United States, we invent stuff and make it into real things. <laughs> and Franklin, uh, one of the greatest Americans, invented the <laughs> glass harmonica, which uses this concept. But of course, it's brilliant and very elegant. Yeah. Uh, um, I encourage you to look it up. On so, the internet, something else we invented. So the other, just real quick, because I want to get to the album. The other two albums I want to talk about that are important to this one is the one where I feel Pink Floyd sort of hit their hit their stride, or not their stride, but they hit the moment where they were kind of the band we were all expecting. That's metal. Yeah. So metal has two pretty big important tracks on it. One of them is called "One of These Days," which is the opening track of the album. <laughs> it's just a rhythm track composed of two bass guitars played through a benson echo wreck yep and it just they just build on this track and it's just this kind of loop this boom 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 anyway yeah um, and it's uh david gilmore on one bass and roger waters on on the the other. other and david gilmore i think has the he has old strings on his bass. That's how they sound different. Well, that was uh, nice of David to condescend to play the bass. Well, he does it on this album, too. And then the, the other monster track on that is Echoes. And the reason why that's when it, that's important is because it was a sidelong track that was inspired by something one of the musicians did in the studio. Uh, Rick Wright had uh, was creating this ping noise by amplifying his grand piano through a Leslie speaker and also going through that Benson Eckerich unit, uh-huh. and it hit this. Um, if you hear the song, it's Very this much. really haunting ping noise, and it inspired Waters and the rest of the band to write this song around it. Um, so that, that plays a little bit into when we start talking about something in a moment, when we talk about the album. Um, but, uh, if you've ever listened to echoes, it's just a fantastic track and you listen to it and you say, okay, this is the pink Floyd. We're all going to come to know and love for the most part of the seventies. Um, so it only took them, uh, eight albums (laughs) to uh, figure out what they were about. And, uh, this is the ninth album. Well, I was going to say then the big, the other one that it has a huge impact on this album is obviously Dark Side of the Moon, but it has an impact in the sense that they were scared to death when they went to the studio on what do we do to follow this album. Yeah. It's like you dated a supermodel all through college and then <laughs> she dumps you and what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Yeah, and they were in there and they so uh, oddly enough they brought up that household objects thing again because they thought well we'll just do the opposite we'll make something crazy and that yeah. didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, they had gone to the studio and recorded three songs or messed around with three songs. One of them called just simply shine on, and then one called raving and drooling, and the other one was called you got to be crazy. And so when they finally sat down and decided let's make something of this, Gilmore wanted to just throw those three songs on an album called a day. Yeah. Um, and he argued, and, the, and Waters wanted to do something a little different. <laughs> and they, so this album is born with a lot of conflict. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's and I think it works. 
I think it does work, but they also they were they were kind of like you were saying they were they were stuck. Also, they kind of they felt like they had kind of reached their peak commercially. Uh, they they were just going like, what do we do after that? And we've got all the money and the success that we could really want. And and you hear them actually, Roger Waters in particular. If you hear him interviewed, there's a documentary that's made about the making of this album. It's a great documentary it too. Is. It's called The Story of Wish You Were Here. Yeah, and. Um, Roger Waters just said he was it, fame was isolating and it was uh, it, it was fun for a while, but it just starts to get something where, you know, you're just constantly trying to figure out how you're going to top what you just did. And, and can you you've got pressure to do that? And he was, you know, and, and then uh, Nick Mason or the same documentary was saying that he if the, the, the things that they the, when they were going into the studio, he wasn't sure what was going to happen. He said he would go in and they would ask him to play music in a certain tempo, and then they would bring a, another musician in, just play something over what Nick Mason had just played, but not to the tempo, not to the temp, not not even listening to it. Just play something over it, and let's just see what we get out of it. <laughs> well, and and to add insult to injury, if you will, not only was there this sort of malaise over the band, but Waters and and uh, Mason were both going to a, a divorce as well. Yeah. So they were dealing with personal matters, and yeah, the band almost broke up. I mean, yeah. there's a real, a real chance this band would have ended with Dark Side of the Moon and not done anything else anymore. But Waters sort of kicked them into gear and yeah. convinced them that what we need to do is save raving and drooling, and you got to be crazy for a later album. They ended up, they ended up being dogs and sheep on animals. Yeah. And let's cut shine on your crazy diamond into two parts and let's write something about not only about Sid, but the, what we're feeling, this sort of absence of us as well. And so yeah. that's why that's what came out of this album. And it is an extremely cohesive album. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it, it seems like he was right about that. Yeah. I think, I think Gilmore and the guys agree that that was the way to go. I mean, I don't know how you can argue with it. Yeah. They, I mean, David Gilmore says it's his favorite album. I think Rick, Richard Wright said the same thing. Yeah. And it makes sense for Rick Wright. I mean, he is... He's all over it. He's yeah. all over this album. Yeah. He gets to uh, show off quite his piano skills and his his synthesizer use. and. Well, yeah, there's some points in the songs where he's playing a piano, a, synth a synthesizer, and the Hammond organ. All <laughs> like They're all sort of overdubbed on top of each other. Yeah, and again, if you see that special, you can just see the rack of keyboards that he's kind of buried behind... Uh, uh, in this, in the studio, um, just we, the, we, shouldn't we be talking a little bit about where the studio was? Oh yeah. <laughs> so there's a this is a studio that comes up pretty frequently in our podcast, and uh, it's uh, known primarily uh, for its association with the Beatles. And we're talking about, of course, studio that the album is named for, Abbey Road. It's Abbey Road, but we don't have a Mellotron got a Hammond organ we've got a mini Moog and we've got something called a, a VS VCS3 which uh, was a very was one of the first quote-unquote portable synthesizers uh, it was used a lot on Dark Side of the Moon that's where they fell in love with it Roger Waters to this day talks about how cool his VCS3 is yep. um, and how many how many cool sounds it has um, and he's obviously in love with it. I mean, <laughs> that 
that uh, manifests itself on this album. Yeah, that's one of the things I want to say about this album is I, I, I you know, Dark Side of the Moon had all the the spoken word stuff in in between each song and sometimes during the song and, and there's lots of special effects like clocks going off and all those sorts of things and there is some of that on this album uh, and they're like there are on all Pink Floyd albums but it's it's one of the reasons why I like this album is because it, it it seems a little bit more immediate some of they tune that stuff back a little bit one of the reasons why I like this album so much is the way that they use the synthesizers I'm always a sucker for when synthesizers are sort of used to maybe as a is like something to draw you in but then acoustic instruments and electric or regular instruments start coming in and there's a the beginning of uh, shine on your crazy diamond i think is a really good example of that and we'll get to the that in a minute but i i would uh have a chance to say this uh, later but i still find some of these noises a little indulgent and I have to remind myself that I'm hearing them after this album has influenced so many other albums that uh, I can't I can't hear the originality that that yeah. is being provided here. Well, they wanted uh, they wanted to get um, Alan Parsons back. In fact, they wanted to make him their their permanent engineer. Obviously, with obvious reasons, he was largely responsible for the way Dark Side of the Moon came out outside of the music the way it sounded and uh he wanted a slice of the pie he said he'd do it for a salary but he always wa- he also wanted a piece of the uh the royalties and they said no and so he moved on i think it was uh beneficial for both parties that um they didn't continue the relationship with uh alan parson alan parson yeah. um yeah so the guy that they did get is brian Humphreys. Uh, Humphreys, who had worked with them on more and some of their earlier albums, the mixing on this was not easy. And you know? I think he did a well, an admirable job. Well, it seems like a good time to go into the record since we're already talking about it. I think that sounds like a plan. Um, Tony, what kind of music is this? What are we going to call this? I don't think this is power pop, Tony. No, I. I mean, this is, uh, I think if, if push came to shove, if you wanted to throw one of your beloved labels on something, Doug, because we know how much you love to label things. Uh, it's just people. It's, uh, it's on one of the far ends of the spectrum, I don't know which, of progressive rock is what I would call it. Um, although I don't really think of it. In my mind, it's not really prog, but that's what other people classify Pink Floyd as, especially at this point in their, in their career as a prog band. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's missing that, that sort of tightness and showiness. that There's a lot not of, anything busy. No. no. In fact... There's no virtuosity. No. I mean, there is. You, you know what? I'm glad you said that, Jam, because when a guitar player listens to this album, it makes the guitar player want to learn how to play what's on this album yeah. because it's nothing is so far out of reach that you go no way yeah. well speaking of which gilmore's my favorite guitar rock and roll guitarist yeah. period i mean the guy we talked about this briefly when we talked about dark side of the moon the guy is so melodic in what he does and i know doug that you're probably listening to this album thinking this is really bluesy how the heck is tony like this stuff um, That's so funny. I almost broke into that at the very beginning. Yeah. I'm, 
You're spending too much time on my head. This is the <laughs> second time you've you've nailed it. <laughs> but it's a it's a different kind of blues to me. It's not necessarily I don't know I don't know why why I feel differently about this. It's it's um it, well it's um I can I can tell you one thing is what you said about the uh, he writes melodies. Um he's not he's not just playing the uh the uh, pentatonic with the uh, flat five he's yeah. doing he's he makes songs out of his uh his, solos his phrasing is is amazing and uh, and everybody likes his guitar playing and it's not because he's doing technical tricks like eddie van halen or um uh, how much? Uh, Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> of, uh, of yeah. Jeff Beck. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, no. Beck, Jeff okay. Beck's making up new noises no one's ever heard before, and you got other people that are all about. Um, he's 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 writing songs when he does a, a a lead, and they're always very attractive. Well, and that speaking of that, the first song in this album, much in the same way we talked about Rick Wright and the Ping and Echoes inspiring that song. Gilmore was fooling around the guitar and he plays a little four note phrase. Yeah. That waters, it hits waters right between the eyes as just this melancholy. It's made him think of Sid. And he said, I got to write something around this. And he wrote this poem about Sid Barrett based on those four notes. Um, Which, and what's after everything I just said about pretty melodies and all that? These four notes are not that at all. They're unsettling. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, you know, that's a that's an interesting word you just used because there are several moments in this album where if you're listening to it and paying attention, it's unsettling. So the, the, the four notes that they come in about... Um, 355 almost three four minutes into the song yeah, into the four minutes and that's and that started the song the first four minutes is well the first two minutes is nothing but synthesizers and sound effects and that wine glass thing and the wine glass yeah. yeah and then the uh there's some it takes forever for the drums to even get in yeah the guitar there's a a like a um really clean sounding guitar that comes yeah. in uh just doing basically blues it's nice yeah, too. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and, and then when that four-note guitar part comes in, they recorded that actually in a the room where they recorded symphony orchestras, and they just mic'd his amp. They put mics really far away from his amp and just let the echo of that. It, it works. It works. Yeah, it, it works. wanted a big sound. Yeah, and so, it gives it to you. I think we probably ought to say that we're on side one. And we just started with track one, which is Shine On, You Crazy Diamond, parts one through five. (laughs) Remember when you were young? You shone like the sun. Whenever someone finally starts singing, it's Waters singing. Uh, you have a lot of uh, interesting keyboard things going on, and uh, David Gilmore's guitar uh, putting down very interesting things. 
Can we just talk briefly about Waters' vocals on this song? Because I think they're fantastic, especially for him. He's not known as a as a great singer, but he puts everything he has into the song, and I think he sounds fantastic. He does. He might be his best vocal performance. Oh, it is. It's and, his best vocal performance. I mean, I can't imagine anyone else really singing it. And I, a lot of times I can imagine, I wish sometimes when I hear Roger Waters You wish Gilmore was singing. Yeah. Well, because Gilmore has a great voice. Does, Waters yeah. does not. I and mean, yeah. he'd be the first to admit his voice isn't great, but it sounds great well, on this song. He, he has a uh, voice that's very good for some things. It's mostly scolding. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, he's got like a scolding voice. It's not a. It's it's not necessarily a harsh voice, but it it. it One thing that really works with Pink Floyd is when they all sing together. Yeah. Oh well, it's so funny that you said that because I was going to talk about that in the next song. When uh, when Waters and Gilmore or Waters and Wright sing together on songs like say "Breathe" off of "Dark Side of the Moon" or or uh, on uh, "Welcome to the Machine" when it's Gilmore and Waters. No other band sounds like that, and it sounds so great. <laughs> to me, that's the most Pink Floydy they sound. Yeah, is with that with that combo. I agree. The thing, the other uh, interesting thing about this particular song is there's two women singing backup on it, uh, Vanetta Fields, and uh, I think her name's Kalina Williams. Yeah, and uh, and uh, if you watch that documentary, they talk about it. it's pretty funny. They talk about how they didn't know who the band was, and and then once <laughs> she they home from a bar of soap. Yeah. That's what she says. And then she says, uh, my favorite thing she says is, they sure do like their ooze. <laughs> and if you listen to it, there's lots of ooze. Go- and they sound great. It was a wonderful review of, it reminds me of these things that are so popular on YouTube right now, where they have somebody that's never heard a famous song before. Oh, yeah. Hear it for the first time. Yeah. And they did not like the music they were singing along <laughs> to. And I think they grew to like it. Yeah. yeah. And they... <laughs> Uh, apparently, they they kind of helped uh, provide a way for the band to uh, spend time together without yeah. everybody going crazy. Yeah, because yeah. they would just they were kind of the calming influence when the four of them were at each other's throats. Yeah. And th- these are uh, two uh, great singers from Motown. Yeah, she's... and they they cross the ocean into something new. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is not Motown. I mean, they said that uh, they, they thought. Motown was strict or had some tough Go requirements. Taskmasters, yeah, yeah they, they were taskmasters, and he said, "No, they were, these was, guys." Uh, apparently, this whole room was filled with uh, intense people with uh, very yeah. strong opinions, yeah. which well, surprises no one. Uh, the other, the other thing, other two great things about the song is right the the solo that the second guitar solo that leads into the vocals. I think it starts around the seven and a half minute mark. That solo is spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's just fantastic, and then I, I love, uh, and this is a weird thing for me that Pink Floyd is is one of these bands that makes me like stuff I don't normally like for some reason, but I love the saxophone at the end of the song. Yeah, too. and that's the guy uh, Dick Perry who had played with them. He did the solo on Money on uh, and Great Gig and or um, Us and Them on uh, Dark Side, Dark Side of, of the Moon. And he ends up playing on a couple of Waterless Floyds, the Waterless Floyd albums later on, Momentary Lapse of Reason, because he comes back and yeah. provides sax for those. But that sax solo is great. And it says, it's funny about this band because that is a whole lot of real estate to give somebody who's not in your band. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and very memorable. I mean, he, yeah. it's a very memorable. All his parts are very memorable. Those Dark Side of the Moon and this album. But they do the same thing with with uh, with Roy, Roy Harper later. They give him a whole bunch of real estate, and he's not in the band. It's just right. it's a weird thing to think about, you know. Yeah, yeah that may uh, we'll get to that. <clears throat> uh, so, Shine On Crazy Diamond parts one through five. That's thirteen uh, over thirteen minutes of the first well, half, and then the last right before it ends, it changes tempo for some yeah. some reason. Yeah. It goes a halftime. Goes halftime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> they they are uh, they don't they're not shy about changing. Tables. Yeah, didn't they have they, to on um what what was it money or time where they had to go back to four four, four, four so that yeah. David Gilmore could play the lead. <laughs> 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 yep. We follow that up with "Welcome to the Machine." Now this to me sounds more like Waters. Uh, this this is extremely Watersy. It's very very much water. Or should I say damp? <laughs> <laughs> the albums without Waters are called what? The dry albums. The dry albums. Waterless. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not very good. <laughs> That's what I call them. <laughs> yeah, I call them. That so too. welcome to the machine. Um, when I think of Waters, this is who I. Uh, this sounds like the wall. Yeah. It sounds like a guy that's that's mad at the way you're, the world is. You're talking about the lyrical content. Well, I, the the song isn't happy. It's no, like, no, no, no. The song's not happy, but I think the song to me sounds much more like something like one of these days. In fact, I think. It's the same sort of double bassy thing going on. Or no, not it's not double bass. It's that synth thing that he's building up on. Yeah, right? they, they, there's uh, Roger Waters. I think is making all those uh, kind of industrial sounds and everything out so of it with the it, BCS three. So yeah, it's not one of these days, but it's similar to this kind of stuff they used to do, where they would layer all of this, uh, all of this stuff on top of each other. Well, just they create do songs. Have, this this is one of the songs where I think. Overdid it. Overdid it on the noises. I don't think well, so. I think I like the way that it's. I think that I, there's I like some it. of them that I think are fantastic, well, and I that's like why uh, I I resent the ones that I would consider over the top, or you, because they take away from the ones that were dead on. I like the way that it it, it the industrial sounds are percolating so much in the background on this that you and again i think uh it's gilmore and Waters singing together but when, when you can hear waters kind of piercing through that it almost sounds like he's being he's a, being trapped in this machine and, he, and he's there's an angst in there that he's trying to well there's definitely I, angst. I, I don't i don't disagree with that at all in fact I, the one thing the one note i made and and uh in listening to this specifically with kind of trying to figure out if i could hear something different is it struck me with how to how about how claustrophobic this song is? Yeah, there's no escape. You put the right. you put the headphones on and listen to the song. You can't escape from it. It really feels like you're trapped in some sort of churning, yeah. you know, machine that's just chewing you up and spitting you out. There is zero space and in like, the song. There, and there's there's no uh, 
percussion. It doesn't really even seem like you're walking. It just kind of seems like you're. No, on a the song doesn't belt. move. Yeah, there's uh yeah, there's this one. I think one bit that's maybe ten seconds long with drums in it that just adds to the menace, yeah. and that's uh, that's it. Yeah. And so you, this is an extremely effective communicator. Uh, this song communicates the theme uh, perfectly. I would say, I, you guys may think I'm crazy, but I would say if you're playing music at a high school dance, this wouldn't be the good one to wrap it up with. <laughs> well, if I was going to have a nitpick about this song, and maybe the next one, is it's it seems a little bit disingenuous to be standing on the top of the mountain reaping all the benefits of this industry that you're complaining about. I mean, they just got through... Becoming millionaires, they got all every stoner in the world has sent them money. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, you know, it's it's a little. I think even Waters at some point in an interview said it was difficult to sing about this stuff because I'd become a capitalist without meaning to. Yeah, you know. Um, but I mean, that's this is he's not breaking new ground for right. rock and roll. I mean, well, and the, and the other interesting little side note on this particular song was the, the video that accompanied the concert footage was done by Gerald Scarf. Yeah, do you know why that's important? He did all the he was a political cartoonist, right? But he did all their uh animation on their tours and he did all the anim the uh the, the wall and um album cover. Yeah, so the first album that they did since yeah. their second album that Hypnosis didn't do the cover of, Gerald Scarf did, and he did all the he created all the puppets, he did all the animations for the wall. He was essentially the graphic designer for that that whole concept. And this is the first time he he worked with them was for this song. Yeah. And um, that reminds me that we skipped the album cover for this album, which is um, you you talk about having to follow up. The Dark Side of the Moon, uh, which was incredible. Uh, you have to follow up the album cover, which <laughs> is, I think, the most iconic album cover. Uh, it's quickly yeah. recognized by anyone. So what do you do? And uh, instead of just one uh, <laughs> picture, they they fill up a book with crazy pictures that yeah. uh, I didn't think were very interesting until I figured out how they did the pictures. Yeah. Um, all of us, I, you know, like young a, guys like me that are used to Photoshop, don't think much of this. Yeah. But they didn't have Photoshop, <laughs> and all these things that look like Photoshop were actually done for real. Like yeah. a guy, a yoga guy, sticking in the water with his feet hanging up in the yeah, he, most he, bizarre place on earth. And he's wearing a scuba scuba gear. So and he had to hold his breath so yeah. they couldn't get bubbles. Yeah. And then the and then the uh, the two stunt guys shaking hands on the cover at, at the Warner Brothers lot. The guy is actually on fire. <laughs> yeah. He's a that, guy. To me, I never thought. I thought that was just a silly album cover. But I'm intrigued by it after I figured out. Well, they interview the guy. Yeah. And he's talking about, well, once once you get fire in your face, you can't not move. Yeah. Um, you really think his, it's a, a silly album cover? I think it's a fantastic album cover. I do now uh, that I know it's it's for real. Before, I thought it was trying too hard. Uh, I, I just, we're so, oh, look, this is I just bizarre. thought it was one of the most intriguing album covers ever. And then when they talk about it in that <clears throat> that special or, or on that documentary, the the reason why they're doing that is you got these two corporate guys shaking hands and the and the term of the back then is when you're 
you know, record companies don't lose. You you got flame burning the other. You got you got flame by the record company. Yeah, you got burned. Yeah. 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 Well, and then they did something very intriguing was they made the, all this incredible artwork and then when they sold it they wrapped it in black cellophane and stuck a sticker on it so you did not if it was in, when it was on the shelves it's like that spinal tap moment how much yeah. more black could it be and the answer is none, none more black none more I mean black. you couldn't see the artwork it was hidden behind the cellophane inspired by Roxy music I might add oh, Is really? that right? Yeah, cuz at the same time Roxy music had that cover with the uh, oh. two naked you oh yeah, front. yeah. And that's the one I refused to buy because of the. Uh, <laughs> well, and they had. And can when we they say nudity on the show, we can say nudity. <laughs> and when they sold that Roxy Music album cover, they had it wrapped in green cellophane to hide that. And so, uh, one of the guys from Hypnosis, I can't remember which one, uh, saw that and said, "What a brilliant idea!" In fact, it's that whole it's that whole theme of absence. We'll just yeah. make yeah. an album cover that's absent, absent. Yeah. which is. Uh, Absence is, uh, we probably should have said that earlier, also uh, a theme in this album. Yeah. And so you get a black uh, a black plastic wrapper, and to appease the record company, they put a sticker on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that sticker, I've got one of those stickers that's a great, right there. It's a great image. Yep. That's also a cool, that would be a cool album cover by itself. It would be. Yeah. Yeah. So we flip over. <laughs> and uh, after we've covered two songs, <laughs> and now we're on side two, side B, or um, left side, left side, and we have a hit, a hit. This is a hit, and a hit. it's been a while since we said we have a hit, and it actually was a hit. So, Tony, what is it? <clears throat> it's have a cigar. Which, uh, growing up, listening to this song, before I ever bought the album, I thought the name of the song was Riding the Gravy Train. Uh, I think probably most people come at it with that, not knowing it's called Have a Cigar. And then the other big quandary listening to this song when I was becoming a nascent uh, Pink Floyd fan was trying to figure out who the hell is singing it. It sort of sounds like Gilmore. It sort of sounds like Waters. Who is this singing? This? Which one of them singing this? And it wasn't until later that I realized neither. Neither one of them is singing. I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because uh, I've had this album for, I don't know, since high school. And uh, I don't, is it not on the liner notes or something? Why was it that I spent the so, so much think, time trying think, to figure out the same thing? He's listed on there. Is I, he? I believe so. Maybe this is before I could read. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about somebody we talked about during the Jethro Tull episode, yeah. and that's Roy Harper. Hats off to Roy Harper. And he, he does a great job, and it's, yeah. uh, I guess he volunteered himself to sing this well, after Ro- they were uh, having tr- Waters yeah. was having trouble singing it, Gilmore was having and then they tried Trouble singing, singing it, it together, and that, that was If wasn't you working. listen, there you can actually hear the two of them sing it. There's a there's a version of it out there on the interwebs, and it sounds god awful. Yeah, it sounds god awful. I don't care what Water says after the fact. He has said publicly it would have been better if one of us had sung it. Neither one of them. Well, Gilmore. Yeah, he, said that, he said that he would have made it sound more vulnerable. And why like, would you want to do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and exactly what you don't want. And Gilmore. Uh, his big thing was he just didn't agree with the sentiment, so he couldn't put his heart into it. He's like, eh, I don't really agree with this. But, man, Roy Harper, he was actually recording an album 
called HQ um, in, the, in, in the same studios. And Gilmore and had laid some guitar tracks on it for, for Roy Harper. I think John, uh, John Paul Jones is also on that album. Anyway, but he was a Harvest label mate. And so he's Roy Harper was also having issues getting inspired. So he would just go up and hang out in the control room with Floyd and watch him record and stuff. And I think he probably said, Hey, I could do this. And waters hoping the band would say no said, okay, why don't you go ahead and do it? And they're all like, yeah, it's a great idea. (laughs) And, uh, and he, I think he knocks it out of the park. He played in a lot of concerts. They do these Hyde free Hyde park concerts. Roy Harper would play. He played a lot with Floyd early on um he was the inspire. he's the inspiration for a song on the wall called one of my turns that was actually i think the incident happened around this time where he was supposed to go on stage at it when pink when he's playing with pink floyd and he couldn't find i don't know his outfit or something and he ended up ripping a tearing a van apart <laughs> which is inspired waters to write the song one of my turns for the wall and here he is singing have a cigar yeah and he's this- not real uh well, the notoriety he has from that song, he's not real necessarily proud of. He says that he would uh, be at, you know, doing his own concerts and they would, people would be yelling out, have a cigar. Well, I, what's funny about that is I think the only people that would be yelling that out were people that are already fans of his. Because I don't think your casual Pink Floyd fan knows Roy Harper sings this song. Yeah, it, it says, the you were mentioning the credits earlier, it doesn't say lead vocals by Roy, Roy Harper. Harper. It just says vocals uh-huh. on yeah. a cigar so i always took that to mean that he was just like a background singer or something yeah well i can understand that being this, irritating this, this um waters is a good writer of lyrics and uh, this yeah. he nails he um he does an excellent job with uh the lyrics in this song yeah, they're just they're wonderful and, they're, uh, yeah, they're, and it's got the famous line which one's pink? Oh, by the way, which one's pink? Which yeah. is evidently something that they'd been asked several times before. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I really do think Roy Harper uh, nails this sort of uh, schmoozy, schmaltzy record biz guy in a way that I don't think Waters could have done it. I'm yeah. sorry. I love Waters, but I don't think he, he sounds, would have done it just He doesn't as, sound like a record company guy. And, no. and Roy Harper was almost inhabiting a character when he was doing this. It's almost like this, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like, we've got you now. Kind yeah. Of, it, it, yeah. Yeah, he does it with glee. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's another song that comes after this one. How I wish, how I wish you were here. Side two, track two, and here we are at the, um, I guess the peak of the concept. Maybe um, it's a it's a heartfelt song. Yeah, um, it's based on a little uh, tune that Gilmore wrote, and I think it's interesting because the part that that the little acoustic guitar part that he wrote is one of the most recognizable things and also one of the most unoriginal things at the same time the the basic uh yeah walk down walk up g to e minor i mean 
none of that is bizarre. Yeah. But uh, he takes something very simple and very common, and it becomes one of the most recognizable things in all of rock and roll. It's actually something that they revisit on several songs. There are other Floyd songs that do that same sort of walk-up, walk-down thing you're talking about. Uh, this, we're talking about Wish You Were Here, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. This song is spectacular. It's, and the lyrics, again, are amazing. I, it's almost it's almost feels cheating to say this is my favorite song on the album. You know? It's just there, there is a longing to this song that is that is fantastic. The way that it's played, the way that it's sung, uh, the lyrics. Um, I, I, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the construction of this, the way it is on the album. So it starts off with this sort of faint radio playing the first part of the tune. And then the idea is there's a guy sitting there playing along with the radio. Yeah. And the cough you hear was an unintended cough. It's actually Rick Wright. And the story goes, I don't know how true this is, it could be apocryphal, but the story goes, when he went, when he was listening back to the song and he heard that cough, he gave up smoking after that because of it. <laughs> really? But yeah, um, but yeah, it's a guy playing along with the radio. Um, I love the fact that you can hear Gilmore's fingers slide up and down the yeah, fret. I think yeah. that sounds so cool. Yeah. And it's so simple, but it just sounds well, so he said, neat. He says it sounds almost country. Yeah. He gets some sort of little country ditty. Well, which is why they had asked um, Stefan Grappelli to play the violin on it. He was in the studio laying down some stuff, and if you guys know who that is, that was he was a co-founder of Hot Club of France with uh, Django Reinhardt. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, they asked him to play violin on this song, and they ended up not using that take because he couldn't quite get it right. And that's also out there on the web. You can hear him playing the violin yeah, along. Yeah, they, they thought they had erased it, but they had actually. If there's versions out there's there, there's two. Yeah, and it just it. They're right. It does not fit the song. It just doesn't. It just didn't click, yeah. which is a shame because it would have been cool. Um, I can I tell make a confession about this song. I initially thought. I don't think that anymore, but I initially thought that line about walk on part in the cage for, or walk on part of the war for lead role in the cage. I thought that whole verse was about Vietnam huh. and a, this idea that you're, that you can either walk on part in the roar, which is walk on because you're not going to make it. Or if you don't go, you end up doing what? Going to jail. Going to jail. Yeah. Or Canada. We'd Canada. like to thank all our Canadian listeners, by the way. Uh, we're more popular per person in Canada than anywhere else. We are. And we have no idea why. Well, I think we do. <laughs> thank you for all of those who came looking for someone else and found us. That's right. Hopefully you'll stick around. I love that this uh, groovy band with these groovy guys are using war as a positive uh, analogy. Uh, he's talking about fighting the machine right fighting right, right, right. the apathy or all right. the evil in the world he says it's fine to have a walk-on part in that war just as long as you're involved and the other choice is to live in the cage right and to give up and uh i i like tony i didn't think it was a vietnam but i never put it together until uh, drilling down on this, and I appreciate I, I appreciate all of his lyrics much more after being forced to uh, dig dig harder. Well, and as a lyrics guy, Doug, I'm sure this is this is uh, you know regardless of whether the music hits you or not, just the lyrics are something that can really 
Well, you if, if you don't like the music on this, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> it's uh, very appealing. Um, I, I, I'm, I like the way this one is a little spare compared to the rest of the album. Yeah, the the drums are lazy, and uh, that's not not a Pink Floyd. Um, this is unlike. This is really unlike anything they've ever done. Really, um, I mean, there's some other really pretty ballads. I mean, they can write beautiful songs. Yeah, I don't think that. they can write anything in a major key, but they can write really beautiful songs. And uh, and uh, this 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 really. Uh, the songs, I, this is one of those songs I could hear a billion times and never get sick of hearing it. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's fun to play on guitar. Yeah. I can even, <laughs> someone is, unta- talk about Gilmore not doing anything spectacular. I can even play this on a guitar to a certain extent. Yeah. Well, the, so. uh, I, I don't know how much, uh, how many other opportunities you have to hear so much acoustic guitar on a Pink Floyd album. Yeah. And then just, and when David Gilmore, does that vocal over his the notes he's playing and the solo? Oh, the scat the yeah, when he's scatting—that's so that's, great. I mean, I yeah. usually don't like scatting, I, I, but that's just the way he nails it on that one. No, it's it's a it's a standout on an album that I think is full of standouts. Um, it's a really great song. I think it's a standout and, in their entire uh, catalog. Well, I, agree. I think they agree with you because if if you know if you think about what they did when they got back, to, so they you know they had a huge falling out waters and gilmore and the rest of the band they got back together for a charitable cause and played at live eight and the song they ended with was this song and it is it's one of those moments where it just everything going on stage does not seem it seems genuine it seems yeah. it's and a great was, moment there you see uh, when the song's over you see um roger waters like motioning over you know telling you gilmore know, to come over. come over and give him a hug and yeah when you find out what the song's about and, and yeah. everything that they've been through and everything, it's it's a pretty heartfelt. They moment. seem like uh, from the interviews I saw that uh, they're pretty well reconciled. Uh, not anymore. They got unreconciled. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And I and I hate to say that it's likely mainly Waters doing. Well, he's pretty highly yeah, strung, dude. I love him. I love the guy. I love his music. But he is a he's yeah, seems. He's supposed to be a, like a really difficult high maintenance guy to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. But Gilmore has, I've never heard Gilmore really say anything bad. He doesn't talk about his, him as a person, as a person very often, but he, I've never heard him say anything bad about his, um, songwriting or, well, or he, cause he can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can't. I think waters, if he wants to, if he wants to be, a jerk can say something about Gilmore's songwriting, but Gilmore's smart enough to know that he can't say anything about what Waters oh, yeah. does. I mean, well, well Waters maligned in '87 when they came out with um, the momentary, momentary lapse of reason. reason. Yeah, he, he was pretty disparaging about them, and he he um, he sued to try to keep keep them well, from making the album. Yeah. I saw that tour. There were 400 musicians on stage trying yeah, to replicate too, yeah. Pink Floyd stuff. That's another thing about the Live Eight show that was so great. There were four of them and Snowy White, the guitarist. That was just it, and it yeah. sounded fantastic. They didn't yeah. need 400 people on stage to do yeah. what they were doing. I think we're jumping ahead just a little. <laughs> Sorry. Unlike uh, Side One, Side Two comes with three songs. <laughs> we have Shine On You, Crazy Diamond. Uh, part six through nine.
this is going to sound weird. I don't like this half as much as I like the first half. Um, it, it well, it starts off very differently. It's well, it's, it started, yeah, those backward drums come in that it started off with, it, and then it's got that trumpet sounding synth. And it's got the two basses. It's got Gilmore playing bass again and Waters playing bass. It's much more aggressive sounding than the yeah. first version. I wondered, listening to it this time, if there wasn't some reason for that. Like, the first part is leading up to Barrett's kind of break, and the second part is after the break. So that's why it sounds... I, I'm just throwing that out. I don't know if that's the way it is or not. But um, it's... Yeah, uh, yeah it's, 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 very, it's very strange, and it's got that... Um, you know that it 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 starts off with that kind of double time time signature mm-hmm. going on as well. Yeah, yeah. and then um, it then it drops. That's what, to me when the song becomes interesting again because it, it, you're like, what do you you slowed this thing down so much? What are you going to do to kind of make it interesting? And I I love uh, Richard Wright's keyboard work on this. I think it's um, just. I love his piano. The piano plays to show how well he plays piano. Uh, he gets that just go synthesizer nuts. Um, well, you know what Gilmore's playing in the first part before he kicks into the kind of the main theme of the song? Huh. He's playing his pedal steel. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, and it sounds unlike any pedal steel I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think Bob Wills would have uh, no, tapped no. him to say, "Come, come along and play with us." Yeah. But um, hey, I brought Bob Wills into the podcast. Doug. Oh, it's important to do that. We've um, got Mellotron and Bob Wills covered. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird when you talked about it dropping down. Uh, the moment it does that is pretty cool because yeah. it's right. It's 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 right before the vocals kick in. Gilmore's in the middle of playing that little bit that introductory part and right in the middle of that it just shifts down it downshifts and it's i don't it's i don't know how that works how is that that shouldn't work and it does well and then and then after the vocal part you get into what i like to call hippie disco (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what else to call that little bit that that little funky bit they play with that i mean that clavinet coming in and doing (laughs) yeah it's a it's very strange. Yeah, it's not, no, I mean, it, uh, if that. there's if there's not if there's not any part, I mean, it is the one part of the album that sounds like 1975 really came does. in and smashed yeah, it upside really. the head. <laughs> if you just loop that, you could have a disco album. You could. Yeah. I agree. Um, but you know what? I learned I learned about this song that I've listened to this song since I was 15 years old. I don't know how many times I learned as it fades out the very last bit of the song is is um is a phrase from c emily play and i oh, never I yeah, I ever knew that, yeah. knew that. Until, and then i listened to it i was like holy cow it sure is so yeah, it's, a little, it's, it's it's a homage to sid yeah well the song's about sid so yeah but the but last I, part is that that was I, richard wright getting to do his i never ever ever knew that and i've listened yeah. to it a million times and it's so obvious once you hear it well i've got a question for you guys uh-huh. Did Sid ever hear this album and what did he say about it? Well, he heard them listening, he heard them playing it back when they were mixing it. And when they this is according to this the legend. They're mixing it, they're going through it over and over and over again and uh they ask to hear it back one more time and Sid evidently gets on the mic and goes, "Why, you've already heard it once." So yes, he did hear it. I don't think he knew it was about him. 
but yeah. he did hear it. But no one, no one's ever heard uh, him comment on this album in depth. No, after he left, or not he's able to. After he left from um, Gilmore's reception, none of them ever saw him again. I think that Roger Waters saw him at, a Her- at Harrods. Oh, really? Buying something, and that he like walked out. He didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, that um, but the, by all accounts, Gilmore and Waters, when they saw him in the studio, just broke down in tears. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what? What happened? Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, don't do the acid and the pork chops. <laughs> <laughs> We've always said that here yeah. on. Uh, That's, our That's our motto. Don't do the acid and the pork chops. You can have pork chop on uh, Friday afternoons, it, but not every day. <laughs> it is pretty remarkable that Barrett Barrett's one of those guys who essentially put out one great album in Piper's at the Gates of Dawn, a couple of really great singles. A couple of very odd solo albums, but he is a cult hero beyond measure. I mean, Bowie says that Pink Floyd ceased to exist for him when Barrett left, which is a pretty dumb thing to say if yeah. you ask me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and uh, Mark Boland signed, he went and signed with, uh, with the uh, management company that Barrett did, um, T-Rex, because Barrett was there. You know, and I mean, there's just tons and tons of people that talk about how influential he is on them for for a guy who has such a small amount of output. I mean, there's no new music. There's no new music to be found. Both of the guys that you uh, I think both of the guys you mentioned would be very easily influenced by style Uh, and that makes sense looks and all of that originality. And he was probably oozing something both of them were looking for well, for themselves. Wore, yeah, they wore t-shirts. I mean, he, and, uh, after he left, they were wearing t-shirts and jeans. On maybe he helped give uh, birth to some uh, glam rock without even knowing Well, but Bowie did have an Arnold Corns personality, which is loosely based on Arnold Lane. So, you know. <laughs> well, um, everybody gives this album their highest rating. Uh, there's not much uh, disagreement about this being a great album. It's on everybody's greatest albums of all time. Uh, Tony, I think you regard it as the second best Pink Floyd album. Probably. Are you? Uh, is is it in competition with uh, Piper for uh, second? No. Um... Metal. No, I'd say I'd probably The Wall. Really? Yeah. I'm also, I know you guys look at me cross-eyed when I say this, I'm also a huge fan of the final cut. But I wouldn't put it on par with this album, but I'm a huge fan of it. Well, um, I listened to The Wall nonstop for about a year in high school because I was uh, feeling butt hurt about something, so... <laughs> I just wanted a wall around me. I just think I wanted some, to be comfortably I, numb. That's well, the album that introduced me to Pink Floyd. I didn't know who Pink Floyd was from a kick in the teeth. The wall? the wall, yeah. Well, here's the thing, and I've said this before. I'm not the biggest fan of double albums. I think there's a whole bunch of filler typically in a double album, and the wall is no exception to that. There's some crap on that album, but there's some moments that rival, to me, rival things on this album. Run Like Hell is I, one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. 
And Nobody Home, I think, is unbelievably yeah. heartbreakingly beautiful in yeah. almost the same way Wish You Were Here is. Yeah. It's an incredible it's song. In same... um, so, but no, Animals is my favorite album. Uh, I, you know, I, there, to me, there's not a stink, stinking moment on that entire album. Even Pigs doesn't stink? No. No. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, uh, we uh, generally review these albums at the end, and this is to uh, distinguish uh, between what we know to be good and what we feel. Um, I'm going to go to you first, Jonathan J.M. wrote. Did we mention that you were humble this week? We no, didn't. we didn't do that. That's our humble producer, Jonathan J.M. wrote. Blessed with much to be humble about. Um <laughs> Where do you rank this in terms of your inner critic that doesn't care about feelings? As an inner critic, I'm going to give it a 4.8. There's nothing that detracts from the album. It's just, in my opinion, it's not as strong as Dark Side of the Moon, which I think is their best album as a critic. All right. Now, let's get your feelings out. All right. Uh, this is my favorite Pink Floyd album, so I'm going to have to give it a 5.0. Wow. Um, I, I find it to be their most personal. It, it It's the album that I listen to the most of Pink Floyd. And I listen to this album pretty regularly. So uh, I listen to it more than I listen to Dark Side of the Moon. Because it's better. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just like I said, it's more accessible. I, you know, I don't need to hear so many sound effects. I don't need to hear um, gongs. And it's just there's things about this album that are just they, they resonate with me more than than anything on Dark Side of the Moon. All right. Well, I'll go next since um, most of y'all are going to quit listening after I go. Uh, <laughs> I'm as as a cold-hearted critic that would rather strangle puppies than operate on the basis of feelings. I am going to give it uh, 4.8. Um that's the same thing James, heartless critic, gave it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're very accurate. Uh, and now with my feelings, uh, what I like, I'm going to give it four or five, which I still consider high, especially for an album that's outside of a genre that I'm uh, particularly fond of. Now the man that has chosen "Wish You Were Here" two times in a row. <laughs> That's right. We didn't mention that I picked the bad finger. Wish you were here as well. This is a first for uh, Vinyl Tap to do two albums with the same name. It's going to be hard to repeat that. I think. I think so. Yeah. Um, Tony. Yeah, Doug. With with your heartless critic hat on, where would you rank this? I'm going to agree with you guys. I think it's a four point eight. Um, I I think that's a good solid critic score. I think um, it. Uh, it's not as uh, it's. I think it's more cohesive than Dark Side, but in terms of just uh, some of the moments, um, I yeah, I think. I mean, four point eight is still fantastic. That's what I would give it as a critic. And now, with your uh, Teletubbies outfit on, what would you give it? Your heart. Tony. This is going to surprise you guys. I'm going to give it a four point eight, not a five point oh. Wow. Um, Yes, I picked this album because I agree with Jam. I think it's the most accessible Pink Floyd album. I think it's the one that tells the most interesting story about the band, which is kind of what we want to do here. Um, hopefully, we were able to bring some new information about it when we talked about it. But there are some moments, uh, case in point, the second Shine On uh, 
there are moments of that that kind of rub me the wrong way. I like it still. It's nitpicking. But it, it detracts enough for me not to want to give it um, a 5.0. Um, you know, I could do without the hippie disco, personally. <laughs> um, lyrically, this album is a 5.0. Musically, it's a 4.8. Very good lyrics. There's no question about that whatsoever. Um, but, Tony? Yeah. I believe you have something for the young folks <laughs> who have hung out this whole time for your recommendation. Well, they're going to be sorely disappointed if they're, if they're thinking it's something new. Uh, it was remastered in 2018. But, That's new. But I do want to talk about an album that was originally released in 1977. And that is Bull and a Ming Vase by Roy Harper. It's We've talked about him twice already. I think it's worth giving him his due. I don't know if we'll ever actually talk about one of his albums. It'd be great if we could. But... This is my favorite Roy Harper album. It's the al first album of his that I bought um, after finding out that he sang Have a Cigar. <laughs> I went out and said, I've got to find out who this guy is. Um, it's, it's, um, it's really, really great. Um, the first song and the second side, so there's a, there's, it's multiple parts, is a, is a song called One of These Days in England. Um, and it just captures what I love about this album. One of those days in England that you said could never end As I was crashed out living every chance One of those days in England we've been saving up to spend Buying rides on Mother Nature's funny belly he's, got, he's always got famous people playing with him. I talked about his album HQ where Gilmore and um, John Paul Jones... On this album, you've got Ronnie Lane from Bases, yes, yeah. Alvin Lee, and Paul McCartney. Cool. Yeah, um, I like me Alvin Lee. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good album. The Paul it's, guy's too good too. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it feel. I mean, if you listen to it, you could see it's got. Um, it's not really folk in the same. There's some folk stuff on it, but it's not folk in the way his other stuff is. It's definitely more rock, and and it's got. You can see kind of where both. Roy Harper and Floyd were kind of influencing each other on this. Anyway, it's called Bowl and it's one word, Bowl and a Ming Vase. You'll have to go to our website when it's up and running to, to see how to spell it. But um, yeah, good stuff. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, thanks, Tony. Uh, so that's it for tonight's show. Uh, remember, you can look us up on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. We're also on Facebook. And please email us at our email address, tappingvinyl at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and uh, would love to have some recommendations for you guys about what we should review in an upcoming episode. Next week, we're going to be looking at an album by a member of one of the most influential bands ever, The Velvet Underground, and their violist, keyboardist, and bassist, John Cale. His album... Paris, 1919. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, 
This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And we wish you were here. Oh. Well, we have some young people in the audience uh, who tonight <laughs> learned for the first time where Pink Floyd's name came from. I was lied to about Pink Floyd's name. I was told that it had something to do with sperm whales and um, a condition shy. that they get when they're feeling amorous. <laughs> um, that is not true, ladies and gentlemen. No, it's not true. I can't. I can't tell you how You've been many. Living a lie. I can't tell you how many people I said. Did you actually know what the names from? Um, it's just just like if you swallow gum, it stays in your body for seven years. It's in the same category. Yeah. Um, I've got a problem though. Yeah. What's that? Um, I don't know as much about this old music as y'all do. I'm more into dodo cat. Doja Cat. Okay, um, that's who I listen to. So, 